These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Who are the most important gods? It's a tough question to pin down, and one we, in our modern monotheistic and sometimes atheist society, can even sometimes have trouble getting a hand on exactly. If we look at the sources that we've mostly been consulting on this show, it would seem like Enlil, Mesopotamian king of the gods and lord of the winds, would be considered one of the most important, in that he gets invoked quite frequently in royal texts. Additionally, Shamash, who is the sun itself, and perhaps more importantly, guards and enforces oaths of all sorts, is hugely important in the economic and judicial texts, dealing so often as they do with contracts and promises. But these two gods are likely as prominent as they are because they're very much governmental gods, and so often our perspective in Mesopotamian history is limited to the government itself, either the king or the various bureaucrats. While even regular people would have known about and revered Enlil and Shamash, they would have been far more likely to invoke the more domestic gods, who honestly barely even rate a mention in our story, like Nisaba, goddess of grain harvests and writing. Some gods, like Ninurta the action hero and Ishtar, goddess of passion, sex, and warfare, were extremely popular across all segments of society, since, of course, heroism and sex hold equal appeal for the lowest slaves and the highest kings. In modern times, however, nearly all of these gods, both prominent and otherwise, have been widely forgotten, as has most of Mesopotamian culture. Your average well-educated person might have some distant idea of who Ishtar and Gilgamesh were, and hopefully this podcast is doing its part in making the oldest civilizations culturally relevant again. But my own impression is that, in the modern world, the two most popular and well-known Mesopotamian deities are not who anyone would have expected. In my discussions online, the two figures who seem to be most well-known are Tiamat and Nurgle, two relatively uh, obscure gods, maybe even, who have found new life as characters in popular modern fantasy settings. Tiamat, who you may recall from the Enuma Elish episode, is technically the mother of all things, at least according to that particular creation account, and birthed a number of monstrous beings as part of her war to make all the newly born gods quit partying so much and make less noise. The name and certain aspects of her character were at some point picked up by Wizards of the Coast, the company that pre-publishes the popular game Dungeons and Dragons, and turned Tiamat into a dragon goddess, who is apparently quite important in a particular franchise, even showing up in some TV show that I haven't yet watched. However, I have already had to disappoint a few Dungeons & Dragons fans who were under the impression that Tiamat was some sort of major figure in Mesopotamian legend, because she really doesn't have much presence outside of the Enuma Elish, and isn't the sort of goddess that people worship directly. In fact, from my brief skimming of the Dungeons & Dragons material on her, the modern Tiamat seems to be a far more fleshed-out character than what's presented in surviving Akkadian texts. 
There is, really isn't that much more to be said about her unless you want to do a deep literary analysis of the Enuma Elish, which will not be occurring on this podcast. The other figure who a modern person may have heard of is the god Nurgle. Spelled slightly differently, Nurgle was taken up by the Games Workshop Corporation as one of the four gods of the Warhammer universe, a science fiction and fantasy setting that makes a giant pile of money selling books, video games, tabletop games, and apparently very soon a television series and streaming service. I don't know. Anyway, a fun little fact that I like to throw around is that we have more text from the Warhammer franchises across all the various books than we have from the entire Sumerian civilization. Meaning that to be a comprehensive expert in Sumerian, there is less for you to read than it would take to be a comprehensive expert in Warhammer. I certainly don't vouch for the quality of every single Warhammer story, but they have certainly built something of remarkable scale. Anyway, in Warhammer, Nurgle is one of the four gods, and he's made into the god of plagues and natural death. Additionally, he's typically portrayed as something of a villain, an evil influence on the universe that must be fought against. Honestly, this is not a terrible modern reinterpretation of the ancient god, though, as we'll see, it carries with it some modern context that's simply missing from the ancient god. Ancient Nurgle is a god of death, but not evil. The idea of evil gods just doesn't seem to have been around back then. And as I'll stay at the start, if you are wondering about the other Warhammer gods, none of the other big four seem to have a direct counterpart like Nurgle does. The Eldar god Cain is obviously loosely inspired by the biblical Cain, Slayer of Abel, and as we'll kind of sort of see, the legend of Nurgle and Ereshkigal that we'll be discussing today was almost certainly used as a very loose inspiration for the Warhammer tale of Nurgle and Isha. All that aside, though, who is Nurgle, and why haven't we heard about him before now? Nurgle is something of an oddity. At once, an incredibly enduring and important part of the Mesopotamian pantheon, and at the same time, highly obscure, with many key details of his character and worship still unclear. Hymns to Nurgle are attested in the earliest Sumerian written literature, and he was worshipped by the ancient cities of Uruk, Ur, Larsa, Isin, and Nippur, probably among others, though his main cult center was a bit north of Sumer proper in Kutha, and may have been a very early Akkadian import. His worship seems to grow in popularity, as we have a few Akkadian prayers as we move the timeline forward. Then, of course, in the late Bronze Age, we have today's tale, which seems to have been a fairly popular and influential story, which seems to have undergone multiple revisions and retellings over the centuries. The cult will continue to remain strong, with a gate and temple to Nurgle constructed in the Neo-Assyrian period in Nineveh, and in the Greek period there is even a temple which combines Nurgle with the Greek hero god Hercules, which doesn't seem like a natural fit to me, but who knows. Despite having clearly been a presence in the myth and faith of Mesopotamians for well over 2,000 years, 
we only have a relative handful of prayers devoted to him directly. And his big stories don't really start appearing until fairly late in history, though of course there could well have been far more transmitted orally that was lost or that was written down and failed to survive. Thanks to this lack of sources, it's a bit difficult to really get a grasp of what he was all about. To make matters worse, the Mesopotamian religion was not a single, unified set of beliefs and myths at any point in its history, and our boy Nurgle is perhaps the very best example of this. Looking at his name, Nurgle is the shortened form of a longer name, which means Lord of the Underworld. However, in our usual conception of early Sumerian myth, the lord of the underworld is a fellow named Gugulana, who is himself a fairly obscure figure. Gugulana was the canal inspector for the prehistoric king of gods, An, indicating that he comes from the very oldest known lair of Mesopotamian religion. He may also have been related to, or may have been the same figure as, the Bull of Heaven, whom Gilgamesh and Enkidu battled. Google Anna, however, died, either because he was the Bull of Heaven and slain by Gilgamesh and Enkidu, or for unrelated reasons. I'm not sure if it's odd or particularly fitting that the god of death would die, but we looked at the fallout from his death back in episode 8 of this podcast, though the focus there was very much on Ishtar, since the famous story of Ishtar's descent into the underworld was one of the most important tales of ancient Mesopotamia. At the same time, Nurgle still existed, both historically and in mythic history. Some think he syncretized with one of the gate guardians of the underworld, Meslem Dea, and later on he definitely synchronized with another Akkadian death deity named Era, all of whom were of course death-related in some way or the other. Before he was lord of the underworld, however, Nurgle was lord of the underworld which seems confusing, but apparently there was more than one conception of the underworld in ancient Mesopotamian thought, and what we could perhaps consider the northern or Akkadian view originally seems to have had Nurgle in the underworld spotlight, not Ereshkigal. Indeed, in one conception of the afterlife, the underworld capital city was named Kutha, which was the same name as the actual city that there was a major Nurgle cult center in central Mesopotamia. Not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the city of Kutha, but it's a thing for sure. Nurgle himself, though, does not seem to have been exclusively an underworld god. And in fact, at the beginning of his most famous story, he's not an underworld god. It isn't really clear what he's god of, despite the fact that his name is still Lord of the Underworld. Anyway, he was associated with the scorching heat of noontime, as well as with warfare, plague, pestilence, and famine. The best summary I've seen of his varied natures is that he's not so much the god of death as he is the god of inflicted death, and as such, tokens like amulets inscribed with prayers to Nurgle were considered to ward off plague in particular. But he is a diverse god, and could be invo invoked as a warrior to slaughter rebels, or as a hero akin to Ninurta, which hero, warrior, pretty same 
pretty similar thing. Or as a master of demons, though the seven or fourteen demons that he controls are more commonly seen in the myth of Era, with whom Nurgle is closely identified. Which gives us sort of a hodgepodge of identity for this fairly important god, and probably gives us more questions than answers. But in Mesopotamia, direct worship of death gods like Nurgle and Ereshkigal seems to have been a bit questionable in certain parts of history. And so even if he was respected and venerated, his cult activities may have been far more subdued and less popularly attended, since the average person doesn't really want to get any of that death rubbing off on him. And so, the tale of Nurgle and Ereshkigal is the main thing that survives to define him in the modern age. There are two different surviving versions of the tale, one written sometime during Hammurabi's time, and the more complete and expanded version written at the end of the Kassite era, which together do a good job of showing us how the Kassites were taking older literature and rewriting, standardizing, and improving it. Additionally, Akkadian scholars suspect that there is at least one more version implied by the two versions that we have, and if there were three, chances are there were probably a number of others. And so I'm mostly going to be working off the expanded Kassite version, but like most ancient myths, the details can vary from telling to telling. However you tell it, though, our story begins up in the heavens. The high gods are holding a feast for all the gods, or at least all the gods are invited. This is apparently a very regular thing. After all, what do the gods do with all their free time if they aren't feasting? It's not like they have Netflix. However, even though everyone is technically invited, Queen Ereshkigal will not be joining the feast. As the undisputed queen of the netherworld, she cannot leave and join the feast in heaven. But the other gods don't consider her some kind of villain or some lesser god. They still seem to love and respect her and send a message down to the underworld informing her that there will be a feast and that she's invited technically to join. But also, they realize she probably can't visit in person. And so they'll be putting her meal in a to-go box for someone to pick up on her behalf. Which is pretty nice of them, all things considered. So they send a servant god, Kaka, down to the underworld. Kaka passes through the seven gates of the underworld, in one version quite deliberately using language lifted from the story of Ishtar's descent into the underworld. Remember, just like how modern people get excited with superhero crossovers in the Marvel movies, ancient audiences loved seeing familiar references in other works. Kaka then performs all the appropriate submission, kissing Reshkigal's feet as she sits in her throne, and formally delivers this announcement that her to-go box is ready to pick up. Apparently, Kaka just bringing the food would not be sufficiently polite, and this whole exchange is all about being polite, as it gives the gods, and narratively, by extension, the elites of mortal society, on whom these behaviors are probably modeled after, excuses to demonstrate their power for their own ego and for display to the world. 
Reshkigal did not immediately ask about the food. That would have been impolite. Instead, she asks about the gods up in heaven. How are everyone doing up there? And Kaka politely replies that all the major gods are doing well, and they all hope things are going well down in the underworld. And then the small talk is out of the way, and Oreshkigal turns to her servant god Namtar, tells him to go up and fetch her portion of the great banquet. And off Namtar goes up the great stairway to heaven. Then we have a gap in our text. All surviving versions fail to clearly spell out what happened here. However, when Namtar arrived as the representative of Ereshkigal, it was expected that he would be treated with the courtesy that would properly be owed to the queen herself. This was actually a crucial element of real-world international diplomacy, and it's telling that our oldest copy of this story actually comes not from Babylon, but from an Akkadian copy made by the Egyptian court of Akhenaten. There's a sense in which a messenger is a mere servant, but also a sense in which the messenger is the living avatar of whoever is sending the message. Since it was likely just as impossible for a Babylonian king to visit Egypt in person as it was for Areshkigal to make it to the banquet in heaven. It seems that in Egypt, respect was shown by standing for the honored guest, while our Kassite copy, and later Neo-Babylonian copy of the same, has everyone kneeling. Regardless of the gesture, this is a mirror of the respect that Areshkigal was shown by Kaka in the underworld. Except that one of the gods did not stand or kneel or otherwise show respect. The god Nurgle seems to have missed the social cue here. The god Ea, lord of wisdom, apparently winked a few times at Nurgle to try and get him to take the hint, but for whatever reason, Nurgle just kept sitting at the table. There are some who read this as a simple faux pas, Nurgle either being ignorant of customs somehow or simply not noticing what was going on, but far more likely this was an act of deliberate provocation. Whatever Nurgle's motivations could be, however, is completely lost to us. Perhaps Ereshkigal, as a widow and a woman, is somehow beneath him. Perhaps he's already planning to muscle in on her territory, though that seems unlikely. Perhaps there was simply some drama in one old version of the text that's been lost to us today. Anyway, whatever the reason for Nurgle's offensive act, Namtar apparently returned to the underworld without even bringing the dinner. Soon enough, everyone gets on Nurgle's case and calls out his huge party foul. But wise Ea, either in order to advance some scheme or in a genuine attempt to make things right, takes Nurgle aside and says, Look, you need to go down there and make this right. Now, what exactly constitutes making this right varies from story to story. In one tale, he's being sent down to the underworld to face execution. In another, he's to go down there and just be nice to the queen of the underworld until she forgives him. Whatever the case, Nurgle makes for himself a chair out of extremely fancy materials. Like, seriously, he has five different kinds of wood, including aromatic cedar wood to smell nice. And then, curiously, he uses imitation materials to cover the chair. Instead of silver, he used gypsum. Instead of lapis lazuli, he used fiance, a proto-glass material. And instead of gold, he mixed potash and cobalt together. 
This chair is interesting on multiple levels. Chairs were used in very high-class burials during certain periods of history, and this could represent Nurgle preparing for his symbolic or perhaps very real death. At the same time, super fancy chairs were also thrones, and by taking his own throne down to the underworld, he may be tipping his hand and revealing to us what his plans are. Additionally, the use of imitation materials is an interesting detail. Ea is the one who gave him instructions for how to build his very nice chair, but a chunk of the instructions is lost, and it's an open question whether Ea commanded Nurgle to use imitation materials, or if he was supposed to use the real thing, but used fakes instead for some unclear reason. But then, once the chair is finished, Ea gives one last piece of advice, some classical instructions for the underworld that will have mythological influence all the way into Greek and Roman times, and of course are much older than this story as well. Ea says, When you arrive there, when they bring you a chair, do not sit on it. When the baker brings you bread, do not eat it. When the butcher brings you meat, do not eat it. When the brewer brings you beer, do not drink it. When someone brings water for your foot bath, do not wash your feet. So far, pretty standard stuff. Everyone knows that if you eat the food of the underworld, you'll get stuck there. Just ask Persephone, the Greek lady. But then, Ea has one more rule for Nurgle. When Reshkigal takes off her clothes, and goes off to the bath, then she's going to perform a striptease for you. But just as you must not eat the food of the underworld, you must not get aroused by this. And Nurgle nods earnestly, paying very close attention to all these rules. He then descends into the underworld, again following quite closely the text of one of the standard versions of Ishtar's descent into the underworld, though Nurgle is not getting naked as he passes down like Ishtar has to. When he arrives, the gatekeeper sends a note to Ereshkigal that a stranger has arrived in the underworld. Namtar the servant gets sent over to check on who it is, and when he returns to the queen, he announces that it was the huge jerk who refused to be properly polite during the feast. Now, Reshkigal seems almost strangely happy at this, thinking that if the person who was keeping her from getting her lunch is in the underworld, then she can sneak up to the heavens and grab a quick bite. She tells Namtar to sit on the throne of the underworld for a few minutes, but warns him very sternly not to get any ideas here, and definitely not to render any judgments, since that would be usurpation. This part of the story actually may be a bit misplaced in the text, but the whole thing is so damaged and confusing that it's hard to tell exactly why Ereshkigal let Namtar sit on the throne while she went out for a heavenly sandwich. Anyway, we have no accounts that tell us if Ereshkigal ever got her lunch, because immediately after this, like the very next line, she's back in her throne, as if she hadn't just been saying she was on her way out. There isn't even a gap in the text. Nurgle just shows up at the Underworld throne room, kneels before the Queen of the Underworld, apparently no longer having the same rudeness issues he had during the feast. He gives her praises, and then announces that the gods up in heaven are a bit upset that she's been so busy pouting that she hasn't been doing her job down in the underworld. 
Ureshkigal is polite through all this and has servants offer Nurgle a chair to sit in, then food to eat and beer to drink, but naturally he refuses it all. Then Ureshkigal goes to take a bath, getting naked in full view of Nurgle, but he manages to have a bit of self-control and stands unmoved in his groin. This, however, displeases Ureshkigal. She may be the queen of the underworld, but she's also a goddess of childbirth. And besides both of those, she's a horny lady. She does something about it, tempting Nurgle with her divine body till he finally gets aroused and the two embrace each other. They then have sex for seven days straight without pausing. At the end of all this, all that Nurgle can think of is that he's been absent from his duties in heaven for a week straight, and all the paperwork must be piling up on his desk by this point. Nurgle begs his energetic lover to let him go, but she refuses because she wants more sex. Still, her chronic sexual starvation may have left her hungry for more, but her body was finally giving out, and she fell asleep in Nurgle's arms. Nurgle promptly wriggled out of her grasp and snuck down to the main gate of the afterlife. He told the gatekeeper that he was on orders from Queen Oreshkigal that he should travel up to heaven, which was a lie, but the gatekeeper didn't know any better and let him pass. When Nurgle gets back to heaven, all the other gods are shocked that he's come back and know that things are going to get pretty serious pretty soon. After all, he was in the afterlife. It means he's dead means he's come back from the dead. This is big news. They all run around offering suggestions for how to hide him. In one version, he simply takes off his hat. But in another, Ea transforms him and tells him to start walking with a fake limp. While everyone is scrambling around in heaven, Ereshkigal is described in great detail as waking up and going into her bath chamber, sprinkling herself and her bed with perfume, and instructs the servants that a nice breakfast should be made up for Nurgle. Sounds like they're going to have a romantic morning brunch, followed perhaps by some erotic bathing and sensual perfuming. Ereshkigal has it all planned out when Namtar shows up, bearing the report that Nurgle escaped in the middle of the night. Ereshkigal literally falls out of her chair upon hearing this, wailing in the soul-deep pain of rejection. Her eyes are raining tears. Tears are streaming down her face. She is inconsolable as she cries out for Nurgle. The exact line... I had not my fill of his charms, but he left me, which she repeats, likely loses a lot in translation, but the sentiment is clear enough. Namtar, the faithful servant of Ereshkigal, begs her to send him to the realm of the high gods to hunt that jerk down and bring him back. Once she recovers herself enough to speak coherently, she gives Namtar a message, which he faithfully goes up and delivers to the assembled high gods in Ereshkigal's voice. Since I was a young girl, I have not known the play of maidens, nor have I known the frolic of little girls. That god whom you sent, he has had intercourse with me, so let him lie with me. Let send me that god, that he may be my husband, and spend the night with me. Am I defiled? Am I impure? 
Can I not render judgments for the great gods, the great gods who reside in the netherworld? If you do not send that god, according to the authority of the lower regions of the great netherworld, I will raise up the dead to devour the living. I shall make the dead outnumber the living. I have to say, the literary quality of this speech is fairly remarkable, even in translation. The anonymous scribe has here captured a shift from despair to rage that very cleanly captures the universally relatable human emotions. There are, if you can believe it, a fair number of people online who believe that ancients didn't have emotions, that they, like, didn't evolve feelings until modern times. Anyway, you just read some of this stuff and you're like, oh, that was dumb. Anyway, Ereshkigal is so very alone. She's always been alone, having apparently been born as Queen of the Dead in this telling, and apparently her former husband has been forgotten for this story. Her childhood was stunted, and her love life has been as dead as the netherworld itself. But what makes it worse, Ereshkigal is a goddess of childbirth as well as a queen of the underworld. And she's a childbirth goddess with no husband to give her children. And finally, she gets some. And it turns out to be a one-night stand? Or at least a seven-night stand, that's how the gods are. No, she'll have what she wants or she will bring an apocalypse of the undead into the world of the living. And so Ea... Enlil and An are too frightened of Ereshkigal's threats to refuse her messenger, but they're still trying to protect Nurgle. And so they have all the gods, including the disguised Nurgle, line up for the messenger. Namtar goes down the line, and while all the divine men of heaven stand silent, awkwardly trying not to give anything away, and Namtar is unable to recognize Nurgle when he passes by. But why are all the gods protecting Nurgle? It would seem like the whole world is under threat, and they would need Nurgle to, you know, take one for the team, especially since, really, he started the problem in the first place. It isn't stated, but I think there may be three things at play here. First off, there appears to have been a moral injunction to help those who sought shelter in your home at least to judge from the constant royal decrees that all fugitives must be reported to the king. Clearly, from the fact that these anti-fugitive decrees had to be repeated so often, people were ignoring these laws in favor of what was likely a society-wide belief that you should help people who present themselves as being in need, even if they might be criminals. Additionally, there is likely an element of good old-fashioned Bronze Age patriarchy at play here, protecting a man from the consequences of a dalliance with a woman. But perhaps most importantly, there is an implicit recognition here that taking one for the team literally means dying. They aren't asking Nurgle to apologize or pay a fine. They're asking him to, in a very real sense, die. And that must surely complicate matters. Even if he was in the wrong, even if a disaster is coming, how can you ask your buddy to die, especially after he just escaped from the land of the dead? 
It isn't clear what Namtar does at the end of his inspection. The tablet is damaged here. It may be that the gods offer him food and hospitality to detain him while they figure out what to do next. Or he goes down to the underworld, is offered food and hospitality, and presumably makes his report. Either way, Aya and Nurgle have a heart-to-heart -heart discussion in which the Lord of Wisdom offers Nurgle a deal. He says, look, I'm going to have to kill you, Nurgle. Straight up, there's no way out of this. But instead of looking at this in a negative way, we can turn this into a win for you and still allow you to meet your obligations. I'm going to give you that burial chair you built, and it'll be your throne. I'm going to give you an army led by 14 demons. And I'm going to give you divine sanction to take the throne of the underworld for yourself. Nurgle takes these gifts and accepts Aya's words and heads down to the gates of the underworld at the head of an army. At each of the seven gates, he drops two demons to attack the gate guardians, essentially making war all the way down to the underworld, capturing gate after gate. This is a violent conquest, for Nurgle has decided that he, if he's going to have to go down to the underworld, he's going to go on his own terms. Once he bursts through the last gate at the head of his massive army, there is no force in the underworld still able to stop him. He laughs as he strides into Ereshkigal's court, dominating and annihilating any resistance as he approaches the throne. The queen sits in her throne, and Nurgle reaches out his hand to grab her by the hair. Nurgle pulls her out of the throne and throws her on the floor. He beats her, pins her down, and violently rapes her. Once she's thoroughly beaten, he's about to kill her when she begs that he stop. She swears to marry him, make him king of the underworld, and she will be her queen. The final lines read, he bent her down from the throne to the ground to cut off her head. Don't kill me, my brother. Let me say a word to you. When Nurgle heard her, his grip relaxed. She was weeping and sobbing. You will be my husband. I will be your wife. Let me make you hold dominion over the vast netherworld. Let me set the tablet of wisdom in your hand. You be Lord. I will be lady. When Nurgle heard this thing that she said, he seized her and kissed her, wiping away her tears, and he said to her, You have wanted this for months. And thus ends the tale of Nurgle and Ereshkigal, a classic romance for people with decidedly non-modern ideas of how gender relations should work. In the story, when Ereshkigal is leading the relationship, this is portrayed as unacceptable. However, when Nurgle comes in and does the exact same thing, except this time with added rape instead of seduction, the two lovers are now much happier, and the order of the world, or the underworld in this case, is finally set right. Obviously, me reading this story is not me endorsing rape in the modern world, but the story itself does seem to strongly indicate that men using force on women was seen as appropriate and desirable in the ancient world, which does conform with numerous other myths which we've looked at and will come in the future. Something to note with this story is that 
Well, it would have been considered a religious work, as was all ancient myth, the spread of this tale tells us quite clearly that it was also meant as a piece of entertainment. We don't know for sure how old it is. The roots of this story could go well back past the year 2000 BCE, or even earlier, when Nurgle was first syncretized into the Sumerian pantheon. But we know for sure that written versions persisted from the Kassite period into the Neo-Babylonian period. What's more, there was even a copy found in Egypt, where the religious context was surely foreign and distant, but the entertainment value of seeing these things would have been universal. Anyway, this is only one of the many, many, many things written during the Kassite period. However, much of what was written simply isn't of much interest to modern audiences. There are dozens or maybe even hundreds of prayers which have achieved remarkable literary sophistication in some cases, but frankly, which lose quite a lot in the translation. There are retellings of stories we've already told, and there are many fragments of stories too small to really do much with. There are a few short works that might be worth reading, but I'm not really sure how I'd fill an episode with them. Maybe a series of mini-episodes on specific poems, prayers, and fragments might be in the works, but for now, it's time to say goodbye to the Kassites. We're now historically into the Bronze Age Collapse, but haven't yet discussed the most exciting and well-documented of the collapsing civilizations, the final century of the Hittite Empire. So join us next time, as the candle of Anatolia will burn bright, hot, and burn out very quickly. Thank you for listening.